Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us today is Amir Adnani. He is the president and CEO of Uranium Energy Corporation, America's leading nuclear fuels firm uh, that is featuring prominently in the White House's efforts to secure a sovereign source uh, of nuclear materials for both energy as well as for national security. Amir, thanks so very much for joining us. Great to have you on the program. It's my pleasure for this very timely discussion and interview. Thanks for uh, thinking of us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo BRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and Leonardo DRS is sponsoring our coverage at the Air Force Association's Airspace Cyber Conference and Trade Show uh, just outside Washington, D.C. this week. So, Amir, you know, walk us through, right? We as Americans like to think ourselves as nuclear leaders uh, for many decades. Uh, The first uh, bombs the United States produced and used during World War II uh, came from the Belgian Congo. Then we were using American sources of supply, uh, as well as Canada that has uh, in the uh, Athabasca Basin, um, one of the largest deposits in the world. But after the Cold War, we started drawing more on Russian sources. What walk, you know, and, and then I think people don't maybe fully recognize that aside from the French, the South Koreans, the Germans, this is a very robust global nuclear uh, e- economy. Tell us how the dependency on Russian uranium uh, developed uh, over the years, because now the priority is to move away from that dependency, just like folks are moving away from their dependency on Russian gas and oil. In today's uh, very partisan politics that we see in Washington, there's two areas where there is really bipartisan support and mutual understanding. One is the fact that there's now bipartisan support for nuclear energy to play an important role in decarbonization plans and and in net zero plans that the government has stated. And the second point of bipartisan agreement is that the United States has ceded its previous leadership that you alluded to in the and global nuclear energy and, and nuclear technology leadership globally to China and Russia. These two points are agreed upon in Washington. Both sides of the aisle agree, and now they want to do something about it. The reality is that you could argue and you could potentially link the demise of uh, this industry uh, from a standpoint of availability of uranium, the primary fuel for having uh, nuclear energy and nuclear technology goes back to the end of the Cold War. At the end of the Cold War, the U.S. was highly motivated geopolitically to dismantle Soviet-era warheads. And in fact, the Soviet Union had uh, a much larger nuclear arsenal than the than America had in terms of total size. And so, the, and and they were, as you know, the looking to rebuild uh, their economy, which was in complete shambles. They needed U.S. dollars. They needed to keep certain uh, economies, uh, portions of their economy going. So the U.S. entered into what is called the highly enriched uranium treaty with Russia. And that meant that they were going to dismantle Soviet-era warheads, take highly enriched uranium, blend it down to low-enriched uranium, and sell it to the U.S. market to power plants to generate electricity. Uh, this kept the flow of U.S. dollars going into Russia. It kept uh, 
the economy and certain segments of the economy uh, propped up over there. But it had a long-term negative effect on the U.S. side. Right. The U.S. domestic mining companies basically were wiped out as a result of this because taking existing mined uranium, subsidizing it, and blending it down, and basically the whole HEU agreement, uh, provided such a cheap source of uranium and it flooded the market. It became the equivalence of the world's largest uranium mine. Right. And that basically destroyed our domestic capabilities. It accomplished something else. Over a span of 16 years, 23,000 warheads were dismantled. So you could argue it, it had a certain geopolitical outcome, but it led to another uh, geopolitical disadvantage that we're faced with today, which is the fact that we don't mine any uranium domestically. We need uranium for power generation. One in every five home in America is powered by nuclear energy. But there's also uranium needed. In fact, U.S. mined uranium needed for the nuclear submarines and the aircraft carriers that are in the U.S. Navy. And obviously, one of the things we were doing was under Nunn-Luger, right, working against a counterproliferation because we were afraid that these weapons uh, and materials left around is going to be highly problematic for the United States. So that was one of uh, the big things uh, that we were also trying to accomplish. And it was highly enriched uranium uh, from the outset that we would we would have to then dilute as opposed to enriching it from ore uh, 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 straight up. W walk us through what your you and your company are trying to achieve and the key role you guys are playing in, in the uh, in the ecosystem because now you're increasingly a consolidator uh, acquiring some Russian uh, capabilities as well as acquiring uh, some Canadian capabilities. Talk to us about the strategy of how you guys are trying to become sort of the central column of this bigger domestic industry uh, that we need to create, again, for power as well as for national security. My company, Uranium Energy Corp., is a Texas-based company. We're listed on the New York Stock Exchange. We're a publicly listed company now. And we've been in business for the last 18 years. And our vision has been that there needs to be a domestic uranium mining company that can provide the fuel needed for nuclear power plants. There's 94 of them operating in the US, biggest nuclear fleet in the world, and also the over 100 reactors that are in the nuclear Navy, largest nuclear fleet uh, in the world on that front. This market needs to be serviced domestically. That was, that's been our vision, that's been our goal. So what are we doing to go about achieving that? Um, we felt it was crazy that 12 years ago, uh, under certain conditions that has never made sense to us, the U.S. approved the sale of Uranium One to the Russian government, a company called Uranium One that your listeners might be familiar with, but for 12 years owned some of the biggest uranium deposits and a uranium plant in the United States, in the state of Wyoming, and was 100% owned by the Russian government. A lot of political pressure and other things led to an opportunity a year ago before Russia's invasion of Ukraine for my company to step up and we actually acquired from the Russian government Uranium One and all of its assets in the US in uh, Wyoming's Powder River Basin and Great Divide Basin, including a fully built operational uranium processing plant. Combined with what we had previously built and, and developed ourselves in South Texas, we now have a platform in the US between Texas and Wyoming where we can mine uranium from fully permitted low cost projects in the US and be a future source of domestic supply. In addition to that, we've looked at Canada. And when you look at Canada's uh, Athabasca region, which is in Northern Saskatchewan, right in the middle of the country, 
you have some of the highest grade uranium deposits in the world. And in fact, a hundred times greater than the average greater uranium. If this was the oil and gas business, Canada's north is sort of like the Persian Gulf of, uh, of the oil and gas business. So we felt we had to make a mark there. We wanted to be a company that based on recent geopolitical events, we really feel that going forward, we need Western supplies because look at what's happening with the power crisis in Europe right now. Europe basically ceded its own fuel capabilities, its own power capabilities depended on Russia. And now it's a hostage to Russia. And now they're talking about record prices and we're talking about winter coming and that's around the corner. You cannot be put in that position. And the U.S. is potentially uh, in that position when it comes to uranium, because, again, we our biggest supplier of nuclear fuel is Russia and we've given up domestic capabilities. So back to my company, we really feel that a U.S. Canadian profile, a combination of U.S. projects and Canadian projects means you're in politically stable jurisdictions, you're in mining friendly jurisdictions, and this is the future of uranium mining, because who on earth is going to sit here and say, oh, yeah, it's totally normal for us to keep relying on Russia for our uranium. I mean, you shouldn't be depending on Russia these days on anything, yet alone something as right. strategic as uranium. Great, uh, great analogy, right? It, it is it is uh, the, the Persian Gulf of uh, of uranium. Um, the administration and and we did a whole bunch of things uh right amir i think that in hindsight we would we would say might not have been smart at the time uh that we thought were uh good ideas we're at least now on a much more positive track the white house sees this as uh, a priority um 1.5 billion dollars going towards this what so what does the 1.5 billion dollars do and maybe give the audience a sense of what that balance is how much of the uranium we're using now is American? How much of it is Russian? And where we're going to be after the $1.5 billion investment is made in terms of you know, what that balance looks like? Because you know, basically, we're going to be dependent on Russian uranium maybe a little bit longer than we would like to be. Right. Well, look, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, we have to start somewhere. We are where we are, no doubt about it, right? And it's completely in a position that is vulnerable, but it can be addressed. Uh, thankfully, there are significant uranium deposits uh, in the southwestern U.S. states, including against Texas and Wyoming. And our neighbor to the north, Canada, has significant, very high-grade deposits uh, uh, sitting in, uh, in the Athabasca region we talked about. So question is incentivizing domestic production, focusing on it, having policies that are geared towards stimulating growth in these industries. Thankfully, again, we've seen bipartisan action. Uh, under President Trump, uh, the Department of Energy unveiled a document, a manifesto called Restoring America's Competitive Advantage in Nuclear Energy. One of their three recommendations of that report was to establish a national uranium reserve and to get funding for it and for the government to start to build strategic stockpiles of uranium. The entire nuclear fuel cycle starts with uranium. Without uranium, it doesn't matter if you can enrich it and fabricate it. You need to start with the raw material. Right now, the U.S. consumes 50 million pounds of uranium annually just for electricity generation for homes, the civilian program. This, again, does not include the needs of the nuclear Navy. 50 million pounds of annual product, uh, demand and domestic production right now is at zero. I repeat, zero. The largest supplier of uranium to the U.S. market, over 50%, is coming from Russia, 
and former Soviet Union states of Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. We can keep relying on them, but there's talk of Russian sanctions. There's talk of Russian embargoes. There's talks of uh, the potential counter sanctions. So look, in terms of are we playing with fire? I think we absolutely are playing with fire. And have we seen Russia start to ban uh, other energy commodities or force companies to pay in Russian rubles, et cetera? All these, all these sort of geopolitical flexing is going on. And so I think it would be somewhat naive to continue to kind of be de- to linger on with this dependency. It's got to be addressed. Right. Now, uh, the White House has stepped up. Uh, there was uh, initially actually a number thrown around of $4 billion that they were uh, asking Congress to approve. There was an emergency measure unveiled very recently on a Friday afternoon where there was an emergency request to Congress for $1.5 billion that you just alluded to to uh, allow the Department of Energy to purchase uh, both uranium and conversion enrichment. Clearly, they see that there is a strategic uh, uh, issue here that needs to be addressed. And uh, you saw what happened with the Nord Stream pipeline, right? Russia can use the excuse of maintenance work and all of a sudden take the entire gas supply down and cause havoc across Western Europe. We have the same vulnerability here. Uh, And the reality is that it can be fixed. Uranium mining is an area that the U.S. used to lead in the world. Before the end of the Cold War, the U.S. was the number one producer of uranium in the world. The geology, the the deposits are there. The know-how is there. This is not something that we have a competitive disadvantage over. It just needs to become a a priority. I think the policy is uh, very much shifting in this direction. Uh, there, there was a tender recently that the Department of Energy put out looking to purchase a million pounds of uranium for the strategic stockpile. To put it in perspective, that's not a big number because, again, demand is 50 million a year, five zero. And so right. the DOE is stepping up and buying a million. Is that a lot? No. Is it a lot compared to what they were doing before, which was nothing? Yeah. When was the last time they bought uranium? The 1950s, the Eisenhower administration. So- right. There is a major historical sea change going on here. It's not every day or every decade that we see the U.S. government on the bid to buy physical uranium and to spell out a strategic view that says, we're short this stuff. We've ceded our previous leadership in this area to China and Russia. This is, again, in the manifesto that was published by the Department of Energy. And we need to restore this leadership and we need to regain it. Uh, and and I think it couldn't be any more clear. I'm actually pleased about the fact that this has been right. so well and so clearly articulated by uh, the, the U.S. government. And again, on a bipartisan basis. Okay, so if the Russians want to cut us off, right? I mean, you, you mentioned Nord Stream. We were able to surge gas supplies. The United States was able to furnish Europe with gas. Uh, there were allies and partners in the Middle East that were able to provide it. The Norwegians can pump more gas. Uh, and the like, in order to try to at least fill some of these shortcomings, and you can do a little bit of rationing, and and it works. In the event that the Russians totally cut off the supply, what are some of the options? Because again, uh, the Germans are in this business, the French Ariva is one of the world's largest uh, organizations providing nuclear fuel, Uh, the South Koreans are involved, and indeed the Japanese are also involved. Um, What are some other ways that the United States can fill any kind of uh, shortcoming whether it's on the commercial side of the equation, as well as on the military side. Yeah, I, I see really kind of two ways of looking at that, okay? So when we, talk about, when we talk about South Korea, France, and Japan, we must remember that within those nations, there is no uranium mining. 
So if we pick up the phone and call the French and the Japanese and the South Koreans and say, we're short uranium, please help us out. They need to do that from their own inventory or stockpile of uranium or nuclear fuel. If they do that, then they need to replenish that as well. So while it absolutely, I think, is an option to uh, talk with allies and, and try to shore up any shortcomings when it comes to availability of fuel, it's not a permanent solution. It's a, it's a Band-Aid fix, and someone eventually is going to be short. It's not just the U.S. that has ceded its previous um, areas of nuclear fuel access. Uh, Japan has as well. You know, Japan for 11 years um, after the Fukushima incidents in 2011 walked away from nuclear energy. Two weeks ago, the prime minister comes out and does a major energy shift policy and says, we're going back to nuclear energy. We're going to restart our reactors and we're going to build more because of what's going on with the energy crisis and because we want emission-free sources of power. So now let's come to the U.S. and let's talk about others. So, so to answer your question, yes, you could call allies and you could look for supplies. But France doesn't mind uranium. Japan doesn't mind uranium. South Korea doesn't mind uranium. So where do you look for? I think you look at Canada. And that's why also my company has recently, uh, you know, we, we acquired another business in Canada for $300 million recently. Why did we do that? Because of what I said earlier, that's the Persian Gulf of uranium. And it's, uh, it's a friendly neighbor to the north. And we're very much geopolitically aligned with Canada. And so Canada has fortunately significant and very high grade deposits that could be developed and mined. So thankfully that option is there. Uh, the allies have some inventories. That option is there. And so I don't think this is an area where uh, we are you know, desperate and hopeless. I think there's absolute avenues available to regain the, the, the control of our own destiny, to regain and restore America's energy uh, in, uh, independence when it comes to the area of nuclear power and to make sure the fuel is there. So, um, and, and finally, look, Look at Wyoming and Texas. I mean, the assets that we acquired from Uranium One in Wyoming are fully permitted, ready to go. And so right. our company will very much have also a domestic answer to this uh, problem of uh, the uranium supply squeezes that we have. And so I think it's going to be an all the above type of uh, matrix that provides the solution to uh, this issue once, uh, uh, you know, once it gets very, uh, very much exasperated. How long will it take for us to be able to be dependent exclusively on U.S. sources? Is it a five-year, 10-year, 20-year uh, project? Because, you know, I've been in this business for a long time. And whenever we talk about, hey, we're going to break a dependency, the, the date we're going to achieve, even when we're being urgent about it, Amir, is a very downstream date uh, normally. How yeah. long of a period of time will it take? And what is the level of investment, right? $1.5 appears to be more of an appetizer than the main course. What's the kind of investment required and what is the art of the possible? Can we do this in two years, in five years, or is this a 20, 25 year project that we're actually talking about that will take 30, $40 billion to achieve? Excellent question. And, and, and let's look at it through a very similar lens for a second. The, the chairman of my company, Spencer Abraham, is a former United States Energy Secretary. Uh, Spence uh, expresses this very... Uh, it's a very great lens to, to, to kind of look through for a second. When, when Spence became energy secretary in the first term of the George W. Bush administration, the United States was importing 50% of its oil requirements 
And that administration felt that that was unacceptable. Something had to be done. And a combination of policy, capital markets, American ingenuity, and the trust and belief that the potential was there brought about the energy revolution in the U.S. that basically made the country from an oil and gas point of view, not only self-sufficient, but actually turned it into an export uh, machine, which is now looking at bailing out Western Europe. That's an incredible uh, example to look at because who would have ever thought that we could turn the oil problem around to the extent that we did? And I think the same analogy and, and comparable is there with uranium. The capital markets are there. American ingenuity is there. The track record is there. The industry has been here in the U.S. for decades. Uh, it's really the end of the Cold War and the HEU agreement that, that, that really depressed it and brought, brought in this kind of very long uh, winter that the industry has has experienced, but we're coming out of that winter. Uh, within a five-year window, we can see a ton of progress, but we need a higher uranium price. We need policy that basically places priority on domestic capabilities, and we need utilities. We need companies that are involved in this to say, we're, we're going to ban Russia. We're going to move away from Russia. We're going to buy less from Russia. It's unacceptable to send dollars over to Russia when those are basically being used to finance Putin's war machine in Ukraine, and instead let's build domestic capabilities. Uh, again, I, I think it can be done with oil, it can be done with uranium, because the same elements are there. The, the human capital is there, and the deposits are there. And, and I think the sense of urgency uh, is, is far greater, actually, in this case, than, than it was uh, uh, you know, back, back in uh, uh, 05 in, in oil and gas. And, and finally, look, let's not forget, not only will this restore energy security uh, and national security uh, in America, it will create tens of thousands of jobs. Uh, to, the, the rebuilding of this domestic mining industry uh, is not only going to create tens of thousands of jobs, it's tens of thousands of jobs in pursuit of a fuel. Uranium is ultimately a fuel that is used in emission-free electricity. You and I are having a very geopolitically focused discussion here and our shortcomings and dependence on Russia. But let's not forget uh, that there are other considerations out there. The considerations around trying to reduce global temperatures, the considerations around uh, just reducing greenhouse gases completely benefit from making sure that our nuclear fleet remains healthy, operational, and that there's fuel available to, to create this emission-free electricity that's, that nuclear provides. And there's a whole, movement that is now recognizing that. And part of the reason the EU wants nuclear power, Japan wants it, China wants to build 150 reactors the next 15 years, is the combination of the fact that it's green energy coupled with national security. And, and those and, are really... Yeah. And, and, and we have a much better uh, reactor technology, much safer reactor technology that's being developed from what was an older generation. But again, let me just briefly, before we part, ask you, so... How long will it take us to develop this domestic business? Is it a five-year interval? Is it a 10-year interval? How quickly can we reasonably do it, right? What should the expectation be about how long it takes us to get there? I think at uranium prices, again, it goes back to the commodity price. I think at uranium prices, north of $65 per pound, and currently the uranium price is at $50 per pound, you're going to see sufficient interest, capital, and activity in the sector that um, within five years, we could uh, probably cut our dependency in half. 
and gradually uh, reduce it from that point on. And, and, and what are the prices then driven by, right? I mean, is this going to be sanctioning, your, you know what I mean? We can't sanction uranium, Russian uranium, because we, we need should. Russian There's, uranium. Well, but we got to get, look, what well, we have to get off of it. I mean, again, this, uh, this business of we, we need it, but we, we have to have it. Well, no, hold on a second. Utilities have inventory on hand. They have two to three years of inventory on hand. Right. Uh, we can, uh, we have to, at some point, stimulate interest. Okay. And if you're a power plant in the U S and you're already operating, the price you pay for a pound of uranium is less than 5% of your overall operating costs. That is nothing. Okay. And so does it matter if you pay $50 a pound or a hundred dollars a pound? The answer is no. And do you continue? I mean, we're really sending a mixed message here. When you think about it, we've sanctioned just about everything else in Russia. We've sanctioned Russian oil and gas. But we're sending right. a mixed message when we're saying everything is sanctioned except for uranium. And so I don't think that's a very balanced policy to begin with, number one. Number two, it, it, you know, you got to rip the Band-Aid off and you got to say we, we have to solve this problem. There's a bill in the U.S. Senate right now sponsored by Senator Barroso has a companion bill in the House that's basically saying ban Russian uranium imports. And will that cause a price shock in, in uranium where prices might all of a sudden jump higher because now there's less supplies available? Yes, but that'll immediately stimulate the, the ability of companies like ours to restart production and, and make further investments and accelerate the growth because we're a free market company and you know how things work in our free market system. If you have the economic incentive, the solutions come about. If you keep dancing around the issue and keep delaying the inevitable and keep relying on Russia, we'll never gain this independence. And at the wrong time for us, Russia will flex just as it has with Germany and Western Europe. And this will become a, a bargaining chip and it will become leverage. Why do we ever want to give them that leverage? And, and again, I think you got to rip the bandaid off. This is one of those things where you just got to go cold turkey. You just can't be, well, you know, let's just keep uh, using the Russian supplies for five more years, and let's just gradually get off of this stuff. I just don't think that's going to be effective. And neither right. does Senator Barroso. They, they're not, neither do many of the senators and, and, and House members that have actually signed on to the bill that says ban Russian uranium imports and do it immediately. I, um, I, I, I agree with you, but this is one of those instances where the government becomes the market maker in it. It's the one who's going to want to have to do it. And ultimately, I'm a sailor. Um, you always want to have uh, one handhold on your boat and one handhold on the other boat that you're going to if you're going to make that move. And obviously, that too uh, is uh, is ultimately a calculation. The question is, once we make that shift and once we cut it off, the key is whether or not we can surge our production to a level that will match our need before right. we end up uh, doing that. And And from my perspective... This is one of those areas where the government does have to make an investment and then maybe does have to do a degree of subsidization, uh, if you want to call it that, even with a purely commercial industry, because it will take time to surge that industry. It's a little bit akin to saying we're going to cut off our dependence on Russian rocket engines. We did that slowly because it took us a while to develop the Russian rocket engines, the, the replacements to the Russian rocket engines uh, that we were depending on. And indeed, we're, we're still using those. Uh, the last of those uh, as we round the bend. So Amir, completely agree with what you're uh, saying. And as, as far as I'm concerned, I would be sanctioning the Russians uh, harder uh, than we're uh, uh, sanctioning them, unfortunately, right? I mean, we, we went from $2 billion in trade uh, a month uh, and with the extraordinary sanctions are down to a billion dollars a month. But my curiosity is 
whether we have the ability to surge that capability as quickly as we would like to, as quickly as we need to, uh, given that I think it's only a matter of time that the Russians themselves may want to cut off those sources of supply uh, from us as well, right? I mean, they're pretty mad at us for furnishing the Ukrainians the means uh, to 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 devastate them. Uh, let me ask one last question on, in that vein then. From the standpoint of investment on the part of the US government, I understand that part of it is market making. I, I appreciate your point about 50 or $100 uh, a pound. You know, if you're the CFO of a major power company, you would say that's a really big deal, even if, um, you know, it, it may not be, you know, as big of a deal in the aggregate uh, amount, right? I mean, every company is looking for every ounce of profit and it has a fiduciary responsibility to do that as you do. From an investment standpoint, Amir, I guess my question is, if the U.S. government was going to make an investment in order to be able to facilitize and to accelerate this industry after sanctioning Russian uranium, what does that amount look like? What do lawmakers need to be thinking of? Is it, you know, and from my standpoint, if we have to spend $10 billion in one year to get there, we should. What's the amount? And is it actually doable, say, in the span of one or two years, as you said, uh, given where stockpile levels are? What's the amount if we wanted to get it done in a year or two that we would have to spend? I'm, I, really, I really think it's more, imp- uh, look, you, I agree with everything you're saying. Okay, I, I just want to highlight a couple of key points here, and I, and I will answer your question. Um, the, the reason why these, these uh, policies that we're talking about and some type of sanction, which basically is government intervention, and we know we don't like the sound of government intervention in a free market system. But the reason why when it comes to uranium and nuclear fuel, it's necessary is because the American government itself is telling you that it has ceded its leadership to China and Russia. And it has ceded its leadership to China and Russia because you have competition from state-owned companies in China and Russia that are, that are in investing and developing uranium mines and nuclear fuel capabilities. That's what I'm up against. I'm not competing with other companies that are driven by bottom line motivations. I'm competing by competing against state-owned companies that have been advancing their interest in the nuclear business for the last 20 years purely to grab market share and win market share away from America, pure and simple. So let's not forget about that. And let's not kind of think that this is purely kind of a market to market. I'm the CEO of a uranium company. I want to see the highest price. The utility wants to see the lowest price. That's great. And we're all doing what's right from a shareholder point of view, and we must. But we're competing with state-owned companies that have basically been playing to basically win market share and not interested in profitability because they're interested in basically winning influence and control away from America. This isn't just me saying this. This is the US government itself saying this in the reports that the Department of Energy put out. So we need a blend of American entrepreneurship and capitalism and the right policy to deal with what has basically been uh, this, this state-owned uh, competition and, um, and influence that we've dealt with. I come back to the fact that I say, I don't think this is about billions of dollars being invested by the American government and American taxpayer. I think this is about having the right uranium price. If we have a $100 uranium price, that will incentivize institutional investors, the capital markets, and, and, and the system that we have here that looks for in sectors to invest in. It would make the sector very investable. 
and that it wouldn't need to be American government funding that gets the sector going. It would be policy that drives that to the right uranium price and that right uranium price will take care of the rest of it. And, and I really think this can happen within years because again, what, what, what we have to remember is that America has a 50 year history of uranium exploration and mining. We know where the deposits are. The infrastructure is there. The regulators understand it. That's a huge competitive advantage. China to this day doesn't have domestic uranium mining. China has to go look for uranium in Africa and Central Asia. They got to partner up with the Kazakhs. Russia has very expensive uranium mines. They've been subsidizing the heck out of it. Right. In the US, we can have economically competitive uranium deposits. And at the right uranium price, I think you're going to see companies and entrepreneurs like me get involved and, and be able to basically uh, advance uh, the interest. So perhaps maybe what the government needs to think about is the floor that guarantees a certain price to get the industry going, as opposed to worrying about putting up the upfront capital. Finally, one point about the CFO of that US utility that you were talking about. If you're the CFO of a publicly listed company in the US that's running nuclear power plants, you not only have to worry, in my opinion, about bottom line and best return for your shareholders, but you have to also think about your sustainability. And every company, as you know now, for ESG purposes, has a sustainability report. And I don't think in a sustainability report, it's necessarily the right message to say that you're buying your uranium from Russia, which is basically financing Putin's war in Ukraine, which is killing civilians, which is killing innocent people, because you were just trying to get the cheapest fuel, which was only less than 5% of your costs. I, I think you have to ultimately ask yourself, is that really the right sustainability practice? And for publicly listed companies now that are talking about the best practices and best sustainability, and they want to get the best ESG score, because guess what? If they get a really good ESG score, they get to get a lower cost of capital. So what about that side of it? And, and I think there, there is this is a fairly nuanced issue. And I just don't think it's as simple as saying, I want the cheapest pound of uranium. Because look, like if the cheapest pound of uranium was offered by the Taliban, would, would, would it make sense to go buy it from them as well? I mean, there, there's a point at which I think you have to say it, it isn't just about the, the cheapest pound because this is not the biggest cost driver or cost center for a utility. This is about making sure that there's sustainable practices in place that are good for a company and its shareholders and society, in addition to national energy and national security interests. And I think uranium touches on all of these points. And I think buying uranium from Russia continues to undermine sustainability and energy and national security interests. Uh, I would uh, agree with you. Uh, but I, and I was talking about a fisc uh, fictional uh, CFO, but Amir, <laughs> no, they, uh, they, you, exist, uh, yeah, they exist, though. They exist. They exist. And we've seen even even in national security companies uh, under investing and cutting corners that gravely damage their own bottom line. We saw it, unfortunately, with Boeing in a catastrophic yeah. way. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm not talking about something theoretical for somebody. It's well, listen, I have to get it for nothing or I have to get it for close to nothing. Uh, in order to be able to maximize my profit. Uh, and, and ultimately, yes, we should have more people thinking uh, more strategically about things that are actually strategic. Um, I wish you all the best. Thank you very much for joining us. Fascinating conversation. Uh, and look forward to keeping in touch with you uh, as time goes on on what is uh, a critically important national issue. Thanks so much. Thank you.